Hello and welcome to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar and it is the pandemic season. This is episode five. Uh, there's a global pandemic going on. I'm right now on day 17 of quarantine with uh, recovering from uh, COVID uh, symptoms. Uh, day 33 of isolation for me. Uh, I don't know how long some of you have been uh, isolated or in lockdown in various parts of the world. Um, we're all in this together, uh, at least those of us that are still living. Um, but, of course, it could be worse. Uh, we're here for a respite from all the, the news of this pandemic. Uh, so let's actually join our friend David Foster Wallace back in 1996 um, on a cruise in the Caribbean. This section coming up is going to be quite uh, fun, funny. Uh, this is where uh, he's going to narrate the story of how he gets on this cruise. And it's all going to be in present tense. And those of you that uh, are familiar with my storytelling workshop know that uh, present tense is, is a key shift that happens in storytelling. So, and that's what I'm gonna do as I begin reading this, this next section. It's a long section. Uh, there are a lot of footnotes but I'm actually going to stay in present tense throughout. And for those footnotes that actually take me out of present tense, I'm just gonna defer them. Uh, this, what's gonna happen next is we're gonna just immerse ourselves into the story that David Foster Wallace is about to tell us. So without further ado, I give you David Foster Wallace from 1996, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, section five. A seven in seas pampering is a little uneven at first, but it starts at the airport, where you don't have to go to baggage claim, because people from the Megaline get your suitcases for you and take them right to the ship. A bunch of other Megalines besides Celebrity Cruises operate out of Fort Lauderdale, footnote 15. Celebrity, Cunard, Princess, and Holland America all use it as a hub. Carnival and Dolphin use Miami. Others use Port Canaveral, Puerto Rico, the Bahamas, all over. The flight down from O'Hare is full of festive-looking people dressed for cruising. It turns out the folks sitting next to me on the plane are booked on the Nader. They are a retired couple from Chicago, and this is their fourth luxury cruise in as many years. It is they who tell me about the news reports of the kid jumping overboard, and also about a legendarily nasty outbreak of salmonella or E. coli or something on a megaship in the late 70s that gave rise to the CDC's Vessel Sanitation Program of Inspections, plus about a supposed outbreak of Legionnaire's disease vectored by the jacuzzi on a 7NC megaship two years ago. It was possibly one of Celebrity's three cruise ships. The lady, kind of the spokesman for the couple, isn't sure. It turns out she sort of likes to toss off a horrific detail and then get all vague and blasé when a horrified listener tries to pump her for details. The husband wears a fishing cap with a long bill and a t-shirt that says, Big Daddy. Seven and Sea luxury cruises always start and finish on Saturday. Right now, it's Saturday, 11th March, 10.20 hours, and we're deplaning. 
Imagine the day after the Berlin Wall came down, if everybody in East Germany was plump and comfortable looking and dressed in Caribbean pastels. And you'll have a pretty good idea what the Fort Lauderdale Airport terminal looks like today. Um, over there near the back wall, a number of brisk-looking older ladies in vaguely naval outfits hold up printed signs. H-L-N-D, C-E-L-E-B, C-U-N-D-C-R-N. What you're supposed to do, the Chicago lady from the plane is kind of talking me through it as Big Daddy shoulders us a path through the fray. What you're supposed to do is find your particular Megaline's brisk lady and sort of all coalesce around her as she walks with printed sign held high to attract still more cruisers and leads the growing ectoplasm of naderites all out to buses that ferry us to the piers in what we quixotically believe will be immediate and hassle-free boarding. Apparently, Fort Laud Airport is always just your average sleepy mid-sized airport six days a week, and then every Saturday, it resembles the fall of Saigon. Half the terminal's mob consists of luggage-bearing people now flying home from Seven Seas. They are Syrianly tan, and a lot of them have eccentric and vaguely hairy-looking souvenirs of various sizes and functions, and they all have a, a glazed, spacey look about them. That the Chicago lady avers is the telltale look of post-7NC inner peace. We pre-7NCs, on the other hand, all look pasty and stressed and somehow combat unready. Outside, we of the Nader are directed to de-ectoplasmize ourselves and all line up along some sort of tall curb to await the Nader's special chartered buses. We are exchanging these sort of awkward, uh, don't know whether to smile and wave or not glances with a Holland America herd that's lining up on a grassy median parallel to us. And both of our groups are looking a little narrow-eyed at a princess-bound herd whose buses are already pulling up. The Fort Lord Airport's porters and cabbies and white bandoliered traffic cops and bus drivers are, are all Cuban. The retired Chicago couple clearly wily veterans about lines by their fourth luxury cruise, has butted into place way up. A second celebrity crowd control lady has a megaphone and repeats over and over not to worry about our luggage, that it will follow us later, which I am apparently alone in finding chilling in its unwitting echo of the Auschwitz embarkation scene in Schindler's List. Where I am in the line, uh, I'm between a squat and chain-smoking black man in an NBC sports cap and several corporately dressed people wearing badges, identifying them as with something called the 
Engler Corporation. Way up ahead, the retired Chicago couple has spread a sort of parasol. There's a, a bumpy fall ceiling of mackerel clouds moving in from the southwest, but overhead it's just wispy cirrus, and it's, it's seriously hot standing and waiting in the sun. Even without luggage or luggage angst, and through a lack of foresight, I am wearing my undertakerish black wool suit coat and an inadequate hat. But it, it feels good to perspire. Chicago at dawn was 18 degrees Fahrenheit, and its sun, the sort of wan and impotent March sun you can look right at. It is good to feel serious sun and see trees all frothy with green. We wait rather a long time, and the nadir line starts to recoalesce into clumps as people's conversations have time to progress past the waiting-in-line small-talk stage. Either there was a mix-up, getting enough buses for people in on AM flights, or, my theory, the same Celebrity Cruises brain trust responsible for all the uh, wildly seductive brochure has decided to make certain elements of pre-embarkation as difficult and unpleasant as possible in order to sharpen the, the favorable contrast between real life and the 7NC experience. Now we're riding to the piers in a column of eight chartered Greyhound buses. Our convoy's rate of speed and the odd deference other traffic shows us gives the whole procession a kind of funereal quality. Fort Laud proper looks like one extremely large golf course. But the cruise line's piers are in something called Port Everglades, an industrial area pretty clearly zoned for blight, with warehouses and transformer parks and stacked boxcars and vacant lots full of muscular and evil-looking Florida-type weeds. We pass a huge field of those hammer-shaped automatic oil derricks all bobbing fallacially. And on the horizon past them is a, is a little fingernail clipping of shiny gray that I'm thinking must be the sea. Several different languages are in use on my bus. Whenever we go over bumps or train tracks, there's a tremendous mass clicking sound in here from all the cameras around everybody's neck. I uh, haven't brought any sort of camera and feel a perverse pride about this. The Nader's traditional berth is Pier 21. Pier, uh, the word, though it had conjured for me uh, images of wharfs and cleats and lapping water, turns out to denote something like what airport denotes viz. Uh, a zone and, and not a thing. There is no real water in sight, no docks, no fishy smell or sodium tang to the air, but there are, as we enter the pier zone, a lot of really big white ships that blot out most of the sky. 
Now I'm writing this sitting in an orange plastic chair at the end of one of Pier 21's countless bolted rows of orange plastic chairs. We have debussed and been herded via megaphone through 21's big glass doors. Whereupon, two more completely humorless naval ladies handed us each a little plastic card with a number on it. My card's number is seven. A few people sitting nearby ask me, quote, what I am, unquote. And I figure out I'm supposed to respond, quote, a seven. The cards are by no means brand new, and mine has the vestigial whirls of a chocolate thumbprint in one corner. From inside, Pier 21 seems kind of like a blimpless blimp hanger, high-ceilinged and, and very echoey. It has walls of unclean windows on three sides. At least 2,500 orange chairs in rows of 25, a kind of desultory snack bar, and restrooms with very long lines. The acoustics are brutal, and it's tremendously loud. Outside, rain starts coming down, even though the sun's still shining. Some of the people in the rows of chairs appear to have been here for days. They have that glazed, encamped look of people at airports in blizzards. It's now 11.32 hours, and boarding will not commence one second before 1,400 sharp. A PA announcement politely but firmly declares celebrities' seriousness about this. Footnote 17. The reason for the delay won't become apparent until next Saturday, when it takes until ten hundred hours to get everybody off the MV Nader and vectored to appropriate transportation, and then from ten hundred to fourteen hundred hours, several battalions of jumpsuited third world custodial guys will join the stewards in obliterating all evidence of us before the next one thousand three hundred and seventy four passengers come on. Back to the essay. The PA lady's voice is what you imagine a British supermodel would sound like. Everyone's clutching his numbered card, like the cards are identity papers at Checkpoint Charlie. There's an uh, Ellis Island or a pre-Auschwitz aspect to the masked and anxious waiting. But I'm uncomfortable trying to extend the analogy. Because a lot of the people waiting, Caribbeanish clothing notwithstanding, a lot of the people waiting look Jewish to me, and I'm, I'm ashamed to catch myself thinking that I can determine Jewishness from people's appearance. For me, public places on the U.S. East Coast are full of these nasty little moments of racist observation and then internal PC backlash. <sighs> well, maybe two-thirds of the total people in here are actually sitting in orange chairs. Pier 21's pre-boarding blimp hangers, not as bad as, say, Grand Central at 17.15 hours on Friday. But it bears little resemblance to any of the stressless pamper venues detailed in the celebrity brochure, 
which brochure I'm not the only person in here thumbing through and looking at wistfully. A lot of people are also reading the Fort Lauderdale Sentinel and staring with subwayish blankness at other people. A kid whose t-shirt says, Sandy Duncan's eye, is carving something in the plastic of his chair. There are quite a few old people, all traveling with really desperately old people, who are pretty clearly the old people's parents. A couple different guys in different rows are field-stripping their camcorders with military-looking expertise. There's a fair share of wasp-looking passengers as well. A hardy note here, wasp is white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, for those of you from an international audience. A lot of the wasps are couples in their 20s and 30s, with a honeymoonish aspect to the way their heads rest on each other's shoulders. Men after a certain age simply should not wear shorts, I've decided. Their legs are hairless in a way that's creepy. The skin seems denuded and practically crying out for hair, particularly on the calves. It's just about the only body area where you actually want more hair on older men. Is this fibular hairlessness a result of years of, of chafing in pants and socks? Hmm. The significance of the numbered cards turns out to be that you're supposed to wait here in Pier 21's blimp hangar until your number is called, and then you board in lots. Lots, by the way, is a term that belongs to an eight-cruise veteran, uh, a 50-ish guy with blonde bangs and a big ginger beard, and what looks weirdly like a, like a T-square sticking out of his carry-on, who's also the first person who offers me an unsolicited narrative on why he had basically no emotional choice right now but to come on a 7NC luxury cruise. So back to lots. Your number doesn't stand for you, but rather for the subherd of cruisers you're part of. Some 7NC veterans nearby tell me that 7 is not a great lot number, and they advise me to get comfortable. Somewhere past the big gray doors behind the restroom's roiling lines is an umbilical passage leading to what I assume is the actual nadir, which, outside the south wall's windows, presents as a tall wall of total light. In the approximate center of the hangar is a long table where creamy-complected women in nurseish white from Steiner of London Incorporated are doing free little makeup and complexion consultations with women waiting to board, priming the economic pump. Steiner of London will be on the nadir, it turns out, selling herbal wraps and cellulite-intensive dilipidizing massages and facials and assorted aesthetic pampering. They have a, a whole little wing in the Top Deck's Olympic Health Club, and it seems like they all but own the beauty salon on Deck 5. The Chicago lady and Big Daddy are in the hangar's southeasternmost row of chairs playing Uno with another couple, who turn out to be friends they had made on a Princess Alaska cruise in 1993. Now I'm writing this sort of squatting with my bottom braced up 
against the hangar's west wall, which wall is white-painted cinder blocks, like a budget motel's wall, and also oddly clammy. By this time, I'm down to slacks and t-shirt and tie, and the tie looks like it's been washed and hand-wrung. Perspiring has already lost its novelty. Part of what Celebrity Cruises is reminding us we're leaving behind is massed public waiting areas with no AC and indifferent ventilation. Now, it's 12.55 hours. Though the brochure says the Nader sails at 16.30 hours Eastern Standard Time and that you can board any time from 1400 to then, all 1,374 Nader passengers look all ready to be massed here. Plus, what must be a fair number of relatives and well-wishers, etc. Going on a 7NC luxury cruise is like going to the hospital or college in this respect. It seems to be standard operating procedure for a mass of relatives and well-wishers to accompany you right up to the jumping-off point and then have to finally leave with lots of requisite hugs and tears. A major advantage to writing some sort of article about an experience is that at grim junctures like this pre-embarkation blimp hanger, you can distract yourself from what the experience feels like by focusing on what look like items of possible interest for the article. This is the occasion I first see the 13-year-old kid with a toupee. He's slumped pre-adolescently in his chair, with his feet up on some kind of rattan hamper, while what I'll bet is his mom talks at him nonstop. He's staring into whatever special distance people in areas of mass public stasis stare into. His toupee isn't one of those horrible, black, shiny, incongruous Howard Cosell toupees, but it's not great either. It's an unlikely orange-brown, and its texture is like one of those local TV anchorman toupees, where if you tussle the hair, it would get broken instead of must. A lot of the people from the uh, Engler Corporation are massed in some kind of round, informal conference or meeting over near the pier's glass doors, uh, looking from the distance rather like a rugby scrum. I've decided the perfect description of the orange of the hangar's chairs is waiting room orange. Several driven-looking corporate guys are talking into cellular phones while their, their wives look stoic. Close to a dozen confirmed sightings of uh, J. Redfield's book, The Celestine Prophecy. Uh, the acoustics in here have the nightmarishly echoey quality or some of the Beatles' more conceptual stuff. Uh, at the snack bar, a plain old candy bar is a dollar fifty, and soda pops even more. The line for the men's room extends northwest, almost to the Steiner of London table. Several peer personnel with clipboards are running around without any discernible agenda. Uh, the crowd has a smattering of college-age kids all with complex haircuts and already wearing poolside thongs. 
A little kid right near me is wearing the exact same kind of hat I am, which I, I might as well admit right now is a full-color Spider-Man cap. Footnote 22. Long story, not worth it. All right, Hari note. Wait a minute. This is David Foster Wallace, he of the long footnotes, and he is saying here that there's a long story behind his own full-color Spider-Man cap, and he's saying there's a long story there, that, but it's not worth telling. He has just spent this entire paragraph commenting on all kinds of things in this in this room that he's in, but he's not going to get into his own hat. Whatever, David Foster Wallace. Back to the essay. I count over a dozen makes of camera just in the little block of orange chairs within camera make discernment range. That's not counting camcorders. The dress code in here ranges from corporate informal to tourist tropical. I am the the sweatiest and, and most disheveled person in view, I'm afraid. Another odd demographic truth is that Whatever sorts of people are neurologically disposed to go on 7NC luxury cruises are also neurologically disposed not to sweat. The one venue of exception on board the Nader, turns out, is going to be the Mayfair Casino. There is nothing even remotely nautical about the smell of Pier 21. Two male Engler executives, excluded from the corporate scrum, are sitting together at the end of the nearest row, right leg over left knee, and joggling their loafers in a perfect unconscious sink. Every infant with an earshot has a promising future in professional opera, it sounds like. Also, every infant being carried or held is being carried or held by its female parent. Hmm. Over 50% of the purses and handbags are wicker. Rattan. Uh, the women all somehow give the impression of being on magazine diets. The median age here is at least 45. A peer person runs by with an em- enormous roll of crepe. Some sort of fire alarm has been going off for the last 15 minutes, nerve-janglingly, ignored by everyone because the British bombshell at the PA and the celebrity people with clipboards also appear to be ignoring it. Also now comes what sounds at first like a sort of tuba from hell. Two five-second blasts that ripple shirt fronts and contort everyone's faces. It turns out it's Holland America's SS Westerdam ships, horn outside, announcing all ashore that's going because departure is imminent. Every so often, I remove the hat, towel off, and sort of orbit the blimp hanger, eavesdropping, making small talk. Over half the passengers I chat up turn out to be from right around here in South Florida. Nonchalant eavesdropping provides the most fun and profit, though. An enormous number of small talk type conversations are going on all over the hangar. And a major percentage of this overheard chit chat consists of passengers explaining to other passengers why they signed up for the 7NC cruise. It's like the universal subject of discussion in here, kind of like chit-chatting in the day room of a mental ward. So why are you here? And the striking constant 
in all the answers is that not once does somebody say they're going on the 7NC luxury cruise just to go on a 7NC luxury cruise. Nor does anybody refer to stuff about travel being broadening or a mad desire to parasail. Nobody even mentions being mesmerized by celebrities' fantasy-slash-promise of pampering in uterine stasis. In fact, the word pamper, so ubiquitous in the celebrity NC brochure, is not once in my hearing uttered. The word that gets used over and over in the explanatory small talk is relax. Everybody characterizes the upcoming week as either a, a long put-off reward or as a last-ditch effort to salvage sanity and self from some inconceivable crockpot of pressure, or both. I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what the syndrome is and how it's related to the brochure's seductive promise of total self-indulgence. What's in play here, I think, is the subtle universal shame that accompanies self-indulgence. The need to explain to just about anybody why the self-indulgence isn't in fact really self-indulgence. Like, I never go get a massage just to get a massage. I go because, ah, you know, this old sports-related back injury is killing me. Ah, and, you know, more or less it's forcing me to go get a massage. You know, or like, I never just want a cigarette. I always need a cigarette. A lot of the explanatory narratives are long and involved, and some are sort of lurid. Two different conversations involve people who've just finally buried a relative they'd been nursing at home for months as the relative lingered hideously. A floral wholesaler in an aqua Marlins shirt talks about how he has managed to drag the battered remnants of his soul through the Christmas to Valentine rush only by dangling in front of himself the carrot of this week of total relaxation and renewal. A trio of network cops, all just retired, and had promised themselves a luxury cruise if they survived their 20 years. A couple from Fort Lauderdale sketch a scenario in which they've sort of been shamed by friends into 7NC luxury cruising, as if they were native New Yorkers and the nader the Statue of Liberty. By the way, I have now empirically verified that I'm the only ticketed adult here without some kind of camera equipment. At some point unnoticed, Holland's Westerdam snout has withdrawn from the west window. The window is clear, and a brutal sun is shining through a patchy steam of evaporated rain. The blimp hangar is emptier by half now and quiet. Big Daddy and Spouse are long gone. They've called lots five through seven all in a sort of bunch, and I'm pretty much the, and I and pretty much the whole massed Engler Corporation contingent are now moving in a kind of columnar herd toward passport checks and the deck three gangway beyond. 
And now we're getting greeted, each of us, by not one, but two Aryan-looking hostesses from the hospitality staff. And now moving over plush plum carpet to the interior of what one presumes is the actual nadir, washed now in high-oxygen AC that seems subtly balsam-scented, pausing for a second, if we wish, to have our pre-cruise photo taken by the ship's photographer, apparently for some kind of before-after souvenir ensemble that they'll try to sell us at week's end. The photographer, by the way, a thoroughly silly and superfluous job, if ever there was one, on this 7N photocopia. I start seeing the first of more watch-your-step signs this coming week than anyone could count, because a megaship's architecture's flooring is totally jerry-rigged looking and uneven, and everywhere there are sudden little six-inch steplets up and down, and there's the delicious feel of sweat drying and the first nip of, of AC chill. And I suddenly can't even remember what the squall of a prickly heated infant sounds like anymore. Not in the plushly cushioned little corridors I'm walked through. One of the two hospitality hostesses seems to have an orthopedic right shoe, and she walks with a very slight limp. And somehow this detail seems terribly moving. And as Inga and Gailey of hospitality walk me on and in, and it's an endless walk up, fore, aft, serpentine through bulkheads and steel rail corridors with mollified jazz out of little round speakers in a beige enamel ceiling I could reach an elbow up and touch. The whole three-hour pre-cruise gestalt of shame and explanation and why are you here is transposed utterly because at intervals on every wall are elaborate cross-section maps and diagrams, each with a big and reassuringly jolly red dot with, you are here, which assertion preempts all inquiry and signals that explanations and doubt and guilt are now left back there with all else we are leaving behind, handing over to prose. And the elevator's made of glass and is noiseless. And the hostesses smile slightly and gaze at nothing as all together we ascend. And it's a very close race which of these two hostesses smells better in the enclosed chill. And now we're passing little take-lined shipboard shops with Gucci, Watford and Wedgwood, Rolex and Raymond Vale. And there's a crackle in the jazz and an announcement in three languages about welcome and willkommen and how there will be a compulsory lifeboat drill an hour after sailing. At 15.15 hours, I'm installed at Nader Cabin 1009 and immediately eat almost a whole basket of free fruit and lie on a really nice bed and drum my fingers on my swollen tummy. And that's the end of section five.
Ooh, that was a long section. Uh, and all just to get on board the ship. And it's a pretty nice contrast that he draws there between that that uh, really crowded waiting room area and then the ah, the bliss of being actually on the ship. Um, I'm going to keep the Hari notes to a minimum here. There is a, There are a couple of footnotes here that I've actually skipped. Uh, one of them I'll, I'll come back to in a later segment to, to describe the actual megaship itself, the different decks there. The only thing I want to say in this Hari note is there's this this little footnote he had about uh, the the reasons why people give to going on a on a cruise. None of them actually say they're going just to go on a cruise. None of them actually say openly that they're they're going because they're they're curious about travel. They all have the sort of like quasi guilt ridden narrative about ah it's a self indulgence, but here's a reason why. Um, and I want to read that little footnote again. There's a subtle universal shame that accompanies self-indulgence that need to explain to just about anybody why the self-indulgent isn't in fact really self-indulgence. Like, I never go get a massage just to get a massage. I go because, ah, this old sports-related back injury is killing me. Ah, this injury is forcing me to get a massage. And I've been thinking about this as as I'm, I'm stuck in quarantine, I'm recovering from COVID um, and, I, and many of us are, are stuck and we're coping in all kinds of ways and, and, um, and, and sometimes even self-indulgence, in self-indulgences now feel like uh, a luxury as, as we hear the news about the pandemic and, and how, uh, how much worse it is for a lot of people out there and how, um, you know, it, it can feel guilty some, sometimes to feel bad about being locked in. Um, and it can also feel sometimes like, ah, <laughs> this maddening thing is not over. It is now week five, week six of isolation for, for me. For some of us, it's even longer. And there really is no end in sight. And so, for what it's worth, it's a pandemic, you know. Let's take care of each other. Let's take care of ourselves. And let's take the day as it comes. Well, tomorrow I'll jump into continued story in section six. Turns out about um, how does the first day of being on this cruise seem like in the Caribbean. And maybe that'll take us away from this pandemic again and, and have us be shipboard with David Foster Wallace. Until then, please stay safe. Stay home, stay healthy, stay human. Thank you.